Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. What is the purpose of St. Paul's discussion of gender and marriage in 1 Corinthians? Why is he seemingly ambivalent about the status of Roman slaves? On what basis does he chastise his disciples for airing their grievances in the Roman court system? How does his critique of speaking in tongues or his discussion of idolatry and Roman religion, summarized in his excursus on infidelity, relate to these questions? Not surprisingly, the series of pastoral issues presented in Paul's letter are systematic and interconnected with his overall argument. 1 Corinthians hinges on the question of one's allegiance and the ruthless priority of the gospel in all things. As usual, the discussion leads Richard and I to some uncomfortable conclusions. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 52 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We've been talking recently because you're preparing a paper for the upcoming OCAB's symposium in Phoenix. And I know you've been working on this notion of slavery and submission in 1 Corinthians. You know, it's obvious that Paul is always talking about himself as a slave, as a doulos, and that he's often talking about his audience as slaves. So this notion of slavery comes up all the time just because he's using the word so often. So we see that there's this passage in 1 Corinthians about slavery, and it's easy for me to go to Ephesians where it says, slaves submit to your masters, which is an uncomfortable notion. So what's going on here with slavery and submission, and why is this important? It's really important, as always, to take a step back from the question of slavery, which for us in our current historical context is a very loaded discussion. I mean, it was loaded in Paul's time too, but in a different way. But to take a step back from our initial gut reaction to the word slavery and to look once again at the context of the letter, Paul is frustrated with the church in Roman Corinth, essentially because they have incorrect priorities and incorrect allegiances. They are falling into the trap of being arrogant, and this arrogance is causing strife within the community. They are in conflict with one another. And it is also leading them to betray the gospel by submitting to worldly powers and worldly authority. Now, there's a nuance here because Paul's disciples are never allowed to enter into conflict, especially with someone outside the church, so especially with a worldly power. So the question isn't conflict. The question is, are they giving priority and authority to secular teaching, secular law, Roman law, Roman judgment, or are they giving priority to the gospel? So the whole thing is about this question of priority. So when you say that they're making allegiances outside, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, you have these disputes in the church. You obviously aren't reading scripture because you're not wise enough in scripture to resolve the disputes. And even worse, you're going to the public courts to resolve the disputes. 
And that's the betrayal. These are the same courts that condemned Jesus to death. But beyond that, in giving your submission to this worldly teaching, you yourself have become worldly. That's what he's talking about in meat offered to idols and idolatry and all this. It's the same thing. It's no different than in the prophets when Israel, out of fear or inability to handle their own situation, goes to the kings and the nations. That's what he's accusing them of in 1 Corinthians. And it sounds like there's also some sort of individual problem, too, in that if there is a dispute rising, then it's because somebody has decided not to submit to somebody else. Which is the wisdom of the gospel. And so that's the key, right? So then the letter goes on. He gives tons and tons of pastoral examples. He gives admonition on marriage and talks about how couples must submit to each other. He goes so far as to say that your body doesn't belong to you. If your spouse wants to have sex, you have to allow it. Because if sexual frustration takes up too much of your energy, then you will betray the priority of the gospel. So agree to come together for a time so that sex ceases to be an issue and we can get back to the business of focusing on the gospel. So that's how he deals with marriage in the first instance. But in the second instance, he talks about divorce and how a believer, if their unbelieving spouse wants to leave them, can't stop them from leaving. You have to submit. They're not under the gospel, so you have no right to impose the gospel. And you have only to lose to them. You resolve the conflict by letting them do what they want. I think the notion of imposing and manipulating and controlling others is often the problem. He spends so much time talking about the family dynamics of sex and divorce and this sort of thing that you are not allowed to control the other. It's submission. You submit. Here's the key. If you submit to Roman authority and Roman power and Roman religion, you become like the Romans and you're the oppressor. If you submit to God's instruction, the instruction of your father, it makes you humble and weak and submissive toward the neighbor. But your submission, as we've said many times, is not toward the neighbor per se, it's toward God. It gets tricky the more difficult your neighbor is. And I think that's where the pain comes in Paul's letters. You mentioned Ephesians, but it's here in 1 Corinthians. Well, and the pain that is so obvious in our culture is one would say, Father, are you saying that then I'm just supposed to roll over anytime somebody mistreats me? Am I just supposed to allow people to do this sort of thing to me? Or am I not supposed to fight for myself or back myself up or to make a stand? Is that what you're saying, Father? This is how someone might ask? Well, they always ask that. And then I just say, well, you've got this icon here of this man being executed. What do you think this means when you call him your king? You can't get tired of making this argument, and you can't get tired of the fact that people don't accept it when you're speaking in godly terms. But as Paul says in human terms, speaking now as a human being, it's exhausting. The relentless rejection of this teaching and all its implications. He goes on with marriage. The third example in marriage, I think, is key, because in a way, this triptych regarding marriage is a triptych that reflects the structure of the letter. Because in the third example, he talks about the man being the head of the woman because the woman comes from man. And people always have a crisis when they hear this and they roll their eyes, they, Paul was a chauvinist, blah, 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 because they don't read the whole section. Ultimately, what he's saying, he's actually undermining the power structures in the Roman household when he starts this discussion of the position of man and the position of woman, because ultimately what he says is that man, just as woman was taken out of man, man is taken from the womb of woman. So now he's got this chicken and the egg crisis, which has philosophers writing books, which is no crisis at all, because the end of the sentence is, and both originate from God. 
and this is extremely important, this argument about marriage that he's making, because it's leading toward the apex of his letter, which is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, under whose feet God the Father, from whom all things originate, will put everything in submission. When 1 Corinthians talks about death dying, it's human beings giving themselves over to the power of death, which is the main sin in 1 Corinthians. Because the Romans wield the power of death, so why are you going to them, whether to their courts or to their religious ceremonies? Why? The gospel offers you life, and you're instead going in the wrong direction. It's leading up now to his discussion, this beautiful passage, which is the subject of my paper, the section where he insists that you stay as you are, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, because once you make an issue out of your circumstance, you are no different than the pillars in Galatians making an issue out of circumcision. So, if you're a slave and you have the opportunity to be free, if the opportunity is laid before you, it's the will of God, take it. But if you don't have the opportunity, why waste time trying to seek an opportunity when you could be spending that time teaching the gospel and living the gospel for the sake of your taskmaster? Can we apply the same chicken and egg argument to the slave and the master saying, while there is a master and there is a slave under God? I think you're spot on because the point to the slave is, if you trust that God will put all things in subjection under the feet of Jesus Christ in the end, then why do you want to fight your master? Didn't you read Exodus where God told Moses and the people to be still because he was going to fight Pharaoh? So now why do you want to fight if you just submit to the teaching? And Paul has this beautiful treatise on love in the epistle. If you just submit to this teaching which prioritizes love, you stay as you are and you focus on love, it puts you in the position of undermining the tyranny of your master with love in order that he might be saved in subjection under the feet of the king when he comes in glory and power. I think this is one thing that might be confusing to people because we see it as mutually exclusive. We submit to God and not to human beings because Paul does talk that way in a different context. And I think it's easy to take that other thing out of context and say, well, if I want to submit to God, can't I get out of submitting to my master? If you can't love the brother whom you see, how can you love God who you can't see? I mean, this is a beautiful expression that I repeat often from John's epistle. Your reference for God in the prophets is Assyria. Your reference for God in Matthew is Egypt, from whence the Lord comes. Your reference for God here is whoever opposes you, your spouse, the person of the other gender, the person with whom you have a disagreement in the church, your owner in a Roman household. I mean, are we about the business of prophecy, which is his emphasis when he talks about speaking in tongues? He's saying basically, it's like a nice chanter in church. If you happen to have a protopsaltis in Minneapolis, and he's there and he sings, enjoy it, why not? But what's more important, the chanting or the gospel reading and the explanation of the reading? You tell me. What's more important, your freedom or the gospel teaching? What's more important, your satisfaction that you're right or peace and tranquility within the household of faith? That's what he's repeatedly hitting them with. So on the one hand, you have this beautiful metaphor 
of the Lord's coming and everything being put in subjection under the gospel of love. But then you have the practical pastoralia, which is telling you, look, how is everything put in subjection under God's feet or the feet of his son? By you first being put under subjection. You were first called to be the first put under subjection. How can you expect your master to subject if you yourself aren't subjecting? Now, this is a difficult message in a Hellenistic, individualistic, Herculean culture, you know, the present evil age. Well, I think there's a kind of dualism. There's the good things that come from God in our mind and then the bad things that come from somewhere else. There's a dualism ultimately in our mind. Ultimately, I don't think we actually believe that everything comes from God. When our spouse gives us a coarse word, we don't think this is coming from God. We think this is coming from our annoying spouse. But everything, everything. Paul says, originates from God, which means that even if your master in your Roman household is mistreating you, you as one under the gospel must assume that it is God's judgment. Now, no one can say before the time what God's judgment is. You have only to act according to scripture. And so in the end, God may put down your master as being wrong, or you and your master may enter the kingdom hand in hand. It really doesn't matter right now. What matters is that you have instructions. I think this is a very difficult teaching because we hear so much in the media about rape and about how people mistreat others. And to try to think of what do you say to a woman who's been raped? Is this from God? Well, so here's my counter question, though. What's more productive for the woman who's been raped? To seek vengeance and to be bitter and frustrated and to become the slave of the rapist by allowing the rapist to dominate her psychology? Or is it for her to let it go and move forward? I realize this is an unpopular discussion, but when we talk about you know fighting back and challenging and vengeance and this culture of human justice, we're not doing justice to the victim. Obviously, someone who is in harm's way, I mean, let's be clear on this podcast for all who are listening, I think this is an important clarification. Someone who's in harm's way should always seek escape from being in harm's way. This is not an irrational teaching in that sense. But so you've been raped, now what? It's the same with people who complain that their parents were so terrible. In most cases, their parents weren't so terrible, they just need to get over it and grow up. But there are examples, outliers, where their parents actually were terrible and abusive. Do you want to spend the rest of your life enslaved to your abusive parents? Or do you want to be set free through your slavery to Jesus Christ? That is the question in the epistle. In my own experience, I've met people who have lived through war, for example. And I have not lived through war, but I've met people. And it's amazing to see the difference between someone who learned a lot from the war and they become incredibly productive and passionate and very focused in the rest of their life. There are others who lose complete focus and it's like the war overtook them. And in some ways, I believe that this teaching does free us in the way that you're speaking, Father. The teaching can bring us out of the idea that these human beings did this and this could happen again. What can I do? How can I protect myself? But instead saying this is a teaching from God, a very painful teaching, an awful teaching from God, but in a way that can make me more of a human being than I could have been without it. Look, everybody, like all the Christians, like to wear a cross. Everybody wears a cross, but none of us take seriously what it means. Everyone in the civil rights movement talks about how even the people who would have opposed the civil rights movement now 
give lip service to MLK. Yet today, the race discussion in the last couple months has been all about us versus them. Is that what MLK stood up for? Or did he stand up for love and submission to the white man? Nobody wants to talk about that. That's why he was a controversial figure. But it's also why he overcame white power. Or the other classic example that's one of the icons in Western civilization is uh, Gandhi. Everybody wants to give lip service to Gandhi, but they also want to fight back when someone makes them uncomfortable. They also want to stand up for themselves as individuals. There is a fundamental conflict of interests between Hellenistic Western individualism and the love of the cross, which instructs us and pushes us toward losing in worldly terms in order to overcome the power of death wielded by those who oppress us. I think the difference is between winning over your brother and beating your brother. Absolutely, because look, it's classic. I always talk about this. The Germans brutally persecuted the Jews. And now the Jews are persecuting the Palestinians. And if the Palestinians ever rise up and establish themselves, they'll persecute somebody else. I mean, all that is, is the cycle of self-righteousness spinning in circles. Everyone wants to rise up and fight back. And then what happens is that you imagine your victimhood is even worse than it actually is. Because the people shooting people in Paris did not grow up in Gaza. So it's a construct of victimhood in their head. But this will go on and on and on until someone says, you know what? Maybe the Germans did persecute me, or maybe the Jews did persecute me, or maybe the terrorists did persecute me, but I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, and I have only to respond with love. Nobody wants to hear it. I think, personally, it's an unacceptable teaching in worldly terms, but it's an agitation, as it were, a kind of yeast that has to constantly be imposed on the world for the sake of the world. Because if even one or two people take this teaching seriously, it has the possibility of functioning like a steward to ensure the continuation of life. Everyone's always trying to win the middle. You know, that's what we hear in politics. You want to win the middle, win the undecideds. One thing that people do is a person on a far end of the spectrum will go and start poking at the other end of the spectrum. They'll poke at it and poke at it and poke at it. And then once it comes after them, there's a see, those people are always very dangerous, you see, because of the ideology of the shooters in Paris. They want to show how Westerners hate Muslims. So then what do they do? They go and provoke something like this. And then what happens There's this outcry of how bad Muslims are. The Muslims who want nothing to do with violence, now all of a sudden they become victims of violence, moving them more towards the jihadi realm. Same thing happens with the right when people say, oh, uh, there's, a, there's a war on Christmas. There's a war on Christmas. There's a war against Christians. And they poke at the other side, poke at the other side. And then the other side says, what? Ah, Christians are insane. See, they're attacking you. This is oftentimes what people do antagonizing and poking in order to, through polarization, break people into separate camps. Which is what Paul is trying to undermine in 1 Corinthians that, very clearly. Exactly. This is exactly what he's trying to do. And he says, no, the point is not to poke. The point is not to take sides. The point is to submit. If you think there's somebody against you on the other side, see what happens when you submit to them. See what happens when you love them. See what happens when you give your very life to them. See if they attack you back. They won't. And if they do, then you're with Christ. So rejoice. 
If they don't, they accepted the gospel, and they'll join you with Christ. So rejoice, but God forbid that you stand for yourself and people align with you against them. Then we've got a problem. I always said that in 2003, when the U.S. was going to go to war against Iraq, we wanted to beat the enemy. I said, you know what? For every person who dies in the Twin Towers, every body we recover, we give $10,000 to an Iraqi hospital. Then we defeat our enemy, not by beating him, but by winning him over through love and through submission. And this is the way that you eliminate your enemy because the way that we eliminated the enemy created 10 times more enemies than we had before. What we do is we give to our enemy and we win our enemy over and that's how we eliminate the enemy is by making them a friend, not so that they can serve us and so that they can love us and they can ascribe themselves to our values and believe in what we believe in, blah, 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 blah. It's we submit to them so that through love we can understand them as humans and as Dr. Yusuf said, we can try to stop othering them and bring together as much as we as humans are able to, under God, bring together a single community. Well, it's about table fellowship. I mean, the point of the gospel is that a Jew, a Muslim, a Palestinian, an Israeli, and a German or whatever could sit down and have a cup of tea together. That's it. I know it's not very glamorous, but that's the issue. I was going to mention about Dr. Yusuf that she actually describes this cycle in her dissertation about the other and her thesis about the other in Arabic literature and so forth. She talks about how there's actually a, a cycle of reaction that the Muslim Brotherhood, for example, Ahwan Muslimin in Egypt, is in a way a reflection of Arab nationalism and secularism. Or in the United States, you have the progressive movement portraying the Tea Party as though they were the Ahwan Muslimin of the United States. But then what does that do? It causes a reaction in the Tea Party, they become more aggressive, and it becomes kind of a projected self-fulfilling prophecy. And then you have eventually such a level of strife that it leads to violence. That's why it's very serious. You know, thank God at the moment our ideological conflict hasn't blossomed into violence in the U.S., but we're always on the edge, as Ferguson recently taught us. And who among the civil rights leaders was calling for love? Everyone was crying victim, but who was calling for love? Where was the preaching of Dr. King, which is the preaching of the Apostle Paul? Where were the preachers? Thanks very much, Richard. It was a good discussion. Thank you very much, Father. Thank you. I look forward to seeing more of the fruits of your research. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.